Thank you for listening to the Redemption Church podcast. For more information about Redemption Church, please visit redemptionokc.com. You can stay up to date on sermons by subscribing to our podcast on iTunes. Thanks again for listening. Thanks, Chris. Church, good morning. If you have your Bibles, turn to James chapter 4. It's where we're going to be. As Chris said, my name is Russell Boone. I'm the pastor to kids, students, and families here at Redemption Church. And if you're new, we are very excited and glad that you're here. We hope that you feel welcomed and loved here uh, this morning as we worship together and as we open up God's word and, and, and study God's word together. So if you don't have a Bible, I want to invite you. There is a Bible. There are Bibles on the back table back there uh, that are gray. If you want to grab one of those Bibles, James is on page 869 in those Bibles, and that way you can follow along. We'll also have the passages up on the screen, uh, up on the screen as well. For several weeks now, we've been kind of working our way through the book of James, um, discussing the things of the Christian life, particularly as it pertains to faith and works. And if I were to be honest with you, the book of James is not my favorite. Uh, in fact, it's pretty difficult for me. I, I don't much like the book of James mainly because there is a lot of telling going on in the book of James, and frankly, I don't like to be told what to do. Um, Any personality test that I take, particularly the Enneagram, says that I'm a challenger, which means that I tend to push against any authority that's put over me. Jeff loves it, okay? But this is no new thing. Uh, My my parents are here uh, this morning, and you can ask them that even as a teenager, I bucked up against their authority on a very consistent basis uh, as they were raising me through high school. Now that I'm out of the house, I think they have a little bit of reprieve. But I work with teenagers today, a lot of teenagers, and, and, and particularly with young men, I see this same kind of attitude uh, kind of in them as well. And I think it might be easy to say that this, this lack of submission or this, um, this type of attitude, we can, it might be easy to contribute that to maybe uh, um, a lack of discipline or a lack of submission, which it very much is that, but I think it goes deeper than that. I think it has maybe less to do with a lack of discipline and more to do with a misplaced desire. That at the end of the day, the reason that we buck up against authority is because we are prideful. And I think that is uh, an aspect that we can all share in some degree or another. Now, for some of us, like myself, our pride is a little bit easier to see, okay? We wrestle with that a little bit more regularly. But I think to some degree, the human experience, we all have a little bit of pride within us. And so therefore, we want to do what we want to do and not submit to the authorities that God has placed over us. And I think it's more about misplaced desires than it is, uh, than it is a lack of discipline or a lack of submission. I think the misplaced desire leads to the lack of discipline, leads to the lack of submission. Uh, there's a professor and Christian philosopher named uh, James K.A. Smith. He professes. Uh, that's not true. He just teaches. I don't, know, I don't know what you call a professor who teaches, but he just teaches at a college called Calvin College. Um, he is a Canadian, but I think he has some good things to say here uh, pertaining to the topic of 
uh, desire. He wrote a book called You Are What You Love, and it's a really phenomenal book. I, I highly recommend it. But in his book, he says this about desire. He says, our wants and longings and desires are at the core of our identity, the wellspring from which our actions and behavior flow. He goes on to say just a couple of paragraphs later, and yet we often approach discipleship as primarily a didactic endeavor, as if becoming a disciple of Jesus is largely an intellectual project, a matter of acquiring more knowledge. Jamie, as his friends uh, call him, um, uh, suggests that we are not merely thinking beings. We're not merely thinking creatures. He actually quotes Rene Descartes, who says, I think, therefore I am. And he says, for the last several decades, Western Christianity has kind of approached discipleship as if man were merely brains on a stick. That we approach discipleship with kind of the attitude of, man, if we just had more knowledge, we would become better Christians. If we just knew more, we would grow in our sanctification. And James K. Smith pushes against that just a little bit. He wouldn't say that we are not thinking creatures, but he would say that we are more than just thinking creatures. We are actually human beings with desire. And that if we don't address the desires that we have, then our intellect will not get us to where we want to go. It's not merely about a transformation of the mind, though it is that, it is also a transformation of our desires. He suggests that we can reshape our disoriented desires through particular habits and practices. He identifies them as thick and thin habits and practices. Thin habits and practices don't really have much effect on your desires, but thick habits and practices do have um, effect on your desires. He, He kind of identifies and, and illustrates this fact with an experience that we all can probably relate to to some degree where there are times in our life where we know that we should do one thing, but deep down within us, we want to do another thing. I'm in seminary right now. I'm struggling through seminary right now. I am just not a great student. And I deal with this on a daily basis where I know that I need to be doing my homework, watching my lectures, doing the reading that I want to do. But man, I deeply, deeply desire to binge watch another episode of This Is Us on Netflix. You know what I'm talking about? Not on Netflix, on Hulu. You know what I'm talking about? That joke is so, so good. And so often, so often, I actually give in to that. That's why I'm not a great student, because I'm trying to see what Kevin is doing on This Is Us. Instead of going, doing what I know that I need to do, I don't do, I actually follow the desire of my heart. James K. Smith says that, well, we can alter this, but he also says that, he also suggests that whether we articulate it or not, we all have a vision of a good life, of the good life. He calls it the telos, the, the, this, this vision of the good life that we're all fighting for. It's different for all of us. Some of us have articulated that. Others of us have not articulated that. And what he says is that our desire for this good life shapes the decisions that we make, that our desires actually inform our mind, that actually informs our, our hands. And so therefore, whatever our vision of the good life is, we will take the particular steps to pursue that vision and to attain that vision of the good life. So our culture would say that that vision of the good life comes from within you. 
And no matter how disoriented that desire of the good life is, it is okay and you should pursue that. But the Christian perspective of our desires is that, they are, that our desire is bent and broken by sin. Therefore, every deep desire that we have, we should proceed with caution. We should handle it with a pretty high level of skepticism. And we should submit it to God and hold it up against Scripture just to test to see if it is pure. And I think what James the book of James, what James, the author of James is doing here, not James K. Smith, but the, the author of James is doing here in, chapters, in chapter four, verses one through 12, is I think that James is making a case that our disoriented desires are the root of our disoriented life. That before we can reorient our life around Jesus, we need to reorient our desires Around Jesus. So, what I hope as we leave here today is that I hope that we believe and that we begin pursuing and we recognize that we need to reorient our desires first around Jesus. Then we will reorient our life around Jesus. That's where we're going. That's what I hope to accomplish here this morning. So, let's jump in to James chapter 4, beginning in verse 1. Our first point this morning is a disoriented desire. This is what James is going to do. Two times in our passage today, he's going to make a statement, a very uh, strong statement. Then he's going to give us three supporting arguments that support that statement. He's going to do it here in verse one, and then two, three, and four, he's going to give us supporting arguments. And then again in verse six, he's going to make this another statement, and then in seven, eight, and nine, he's going to support that statement. So we are arguing with James this morning, and I hope that by the grace of God, you will be convinced of what he's saying. So let's read James chapter four, beginning in verse one, it says, what causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? So there's his argument. What causes fights and quarrels among you is the fact that your desires are at war within you. Your desires are disoriented and, the re- and because of that, your life is disoriented, okay? There is conflict within your desires, therefore there is conflict with your life. So verse two, his first supporting argument says this. You desire and you do not have, so you murder. Ooh, those are strong words. You desire and you do not have, so you murder. You covet and you cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. Whenever your desires for something is so much so that it leads you to sin, you are literally dethroning Jesus from the throne of your life. You are literally submitting to your own desires. You are functionally saying, I am the king of my life. That Jesus has no right to tell me what to do. I will not submit to him. I'm gonna do what I wanna do, even if it leads me to sin. You are functionally dethroning Jesus from the rightful throne of your life and you are crowning yourself. And you are, it's as if you're saying, you know better. I told my dad one time I knew better and he just about knocked me in the next year, all right? But that is what we do when we submit to our own desires so much so that it leads us into sin. Thankfully, the Lord is gracious with us. But whenever you do this, whenever you submit to your own desires, and my dad did not hit me. I feel like I need to address that because he's here today. He never touched me, okay? He threatened to a couple of times, whipped me into shape, but he never touched me. Okay, so um, 
Sorry, Dad. I'm just repenting before you, before these people. But I think when we do this, whenever we give, a, when we give in to, this, to the desires so, of our hearts so much so that leads us to sin, we are functionally saying that Jesus is not sufficient. It is a lack of faith. It is a disbelief in the sufficiency of Christ. James goes on in verse two, he says this. Excuse me, in verse, well, it's part two and three. He says this. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your own passions. This is why James is so frustrating because it's a lose-lose. You, you do not receive because you do not ask. But then whenever I do ask, I, I, I do not receive because I ask wrongly. Like, come on, James. Like, come on, can I not win with you? Like, this dude is it's very, very difficult to wrestle with. But he says, you do not have because you do not ask. Why would you not ask for something? Well, I think there's a lot of reasons why we might not ask for something. But I think what James is really driving at is the pride that is within our heart. Why would we not ask for something? Because we believe that we are sufficient and that we don't have need. I was having coffee with a friend earlier this week and we had a really good conversation and I'm really grateful for time with him. But then later in the conversation, he turned the, table, turned the tables on me and he asked me, what can I do for you? He said, do you need new tires on your car? Do you need your oil changed? What can I do for you? And it kind of, kind of took me back a little bit. I said, but I don't know really how to answer that question because, because he was specifically asking kind of financially, like, what are some ways that he could just serve me? I said, man, it's really difficult for me to answer that question because I feel like if I had financial need, it, it had to do with maybe uh, me mismanaging my money. So it's just kind of weird for me to ask, you know, for, for help. And he looked at me in a very kind and a very gentle and loving rebuke. He said, but there's so many people come to you for advice, for counsel, for direction, for leadership. And if you're not acutely aware of your need, then you're gonna begin believing that you have no need. And that's gonna turn itself into pride. I was like, okay, well then you wanna pay my mortgage? No, I didn't say, but it was just a very loving and gentle rebuke of saying, brother, you have need. Don't believe that you don't. And if I reflect upon my life with God, I don't go to him because I don't think that he can help me. I think I can do it. This is a pull yourself up by your bootstraps mentality. This is a, this is a God helps those who help themselves mentality. This is a, uh, this is a uh, next, uh, cleanliness is next to godliness mentality. This is a very fundamentally unchristian thought. God does not help those who help, himself, help themselves. That's false and it's anti-gospel. God does not want you to pull yourself up by your bootstraps. He wants you to fall on your knees and say, woe is me, for I'm a man of unclean lips, and I dwell among a people of unclean lips. Come and help me, Father. Save me. Forgive me of my iniquity. Forgive me of my sin. That is what Christian life is. It's a life of repentance, not a life of success. It's a life of humility, not a life of pride. You ask, but he goes further. He says, you ask and you do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your own passions. I think this verse in verse three might be, might be the definition of cultural Christianity. That we ask and we do not receive because we ask wrongly. 
here in Edmond, Oklahoma, in the Midwest, in a very Christian culture, we know that nobody gets elected to political office unless they're Christians. We know that the best circles to network in is the church. Whether you want to expand your business, you can meet the most people in the church. Or if you want to climb that corporate ladder, just find wherever your boss is going to church and go there and get in good with him so that whenever that job opportunity opens up, that next position opens up, you might be recognized. You ask and you do not receive because you ask with the wrong desire. This is a utilitarian way of using Jesus. It's, it's, it's using Jesus as a utility belt, not treating Jesus as the king who sits on his throne like he does. This is saying, no, I want this, so I want to use Jesus for my own glory instead of bowing down to Jesus for his glory and worshiping him. This is what asking with the wrong desires is. And this is why we don't receive, thank God, this is why we don't receive what we ask when we ask under the wrong intentions, under the wrong passions and the wrong desire. And then James says in his third supporting point in verse four, he says, you adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of of the world makes himself an enemy of God. This loosely identification with Jesus for your own personal, personal gain, you are literally setting yourself against God. This is anti-Christian, it's anti-gospel, and this is not what Jesus came to live a perfect life for, to die a perfect death for, and to conquer death to give us newness of life, not just for our own glory, but for his glory. Wanting the world and Jesus is literally dethroning Jesus and making him equal to the world while you place yourself on the throne of your life. And James is not merely painting a poor picture of man here, but he is also establishing a strong connection between our desires and our actions. Or to say it another way, he is making a strong connection between our heart and our hands. And that disoriented desires lead to a disoriented life. Now that we know what leads to a disoriented life, which is our disoriented desires, the next question is, why? Why do we desire something other than Jesus? This is what we we call biblical theology, that we have to remember and have to uh, keep in mind that as we're reading these words, James is writing this book in the midst of a much larger story. A really good way, a good reminder for that is to recognize that the book of James is actually in the midst of a much larger book. It's in the midst of, the, of God's story. So I think for us to understand what has gone so wrong that we desire, that we would desire something other than God, I think we have to go back to Genesis. As so many of you know the Genesis story, and maybe it's too familiar for you, so that's why I want to go back and revisit it. You know that in the creation narrative for six days, God spoke something into nothing, and every time he did something, happened by the words of his mouth that he said let there be light and out of nothing something happened and light came into existence and by the words of his mouth he created the heavens and the earth and by the words of his mouth he separated the water 
from the dry ground. And just by the words of his mouth, something out of nothing happened. The glory of God in the Genesis story is magnificent. And then everything slows down whenever he creates man. And he steps down into his creation. Oh, he steps down into his creation almost as if to, with his own hands he begins to form man. His crown creation, his crown possession. He creates man in his likeness and in his image. And that's where we pick up in Genesis 2, 7 and 8. It says this, Then the Lord God formed the man of the dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living creature. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. Just a few verses later in verse 15, it says, the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. God gave Adam a wife. God then set man and woman loose on the playground of creation for them to enjoy, not just for them to enjoy, but for them to enjoy and for that to turn their attention back to God. This is the the. Edenic world. This is the world as it was meant to be. When we look at the Garden of Eden, this is how things were intended to be. We see perfect communion with God and man. We see perfect relationship between man and man, man and woman. We see perfect relationship between man and creation. There was no, there was no natural disasters. There was no brokenness uh, in creation. We even see God giving work to man as a form of worship not as a form of toil and strife, but as a form of worship. That whenever man would cultivate and create and sustain, he literally is imaging the image of God. And it's a form of worship. However, we know that in the creation story, it comes to an end pretty quickly. In Genesis chapter three, we see man and woman disobeying God and these right desires, these rightly oriented desires for the gifts of God and for God himself become severely disoriented. In Genesis chapter 3 verse 6 it says, so when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate and she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he Adam and Eve rebelled against God because they desired the gift above the giver. Eve did not want to be, Eve did not want to submit to God. She wanted to be God. In that moment when she looked upon the fruit and she saw that, that it would make her wise, she wanted to be wise as though God, as if God was wise. She wanted to be wise like God was wise. She fundamentally took God off the throne of her life and placed her own desires as the chief desires and she submitted to her own desires and she sinned and rebelled against God. And this is where right desire becomes disoriented. It becomes disoriented when we desire the created above the creator. When we want the gift more than we want the giver, that I would be remiss if we did not highlight God's response to them. Because where we see God responding to, the, to, to Adam and Eve in the creation narrative is how he responds to us even while we 
are in the midst of our disoriented desires. In Genesis 3, 7 and 8, it says this, then the eyes of both were opened and they knew that they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Just a few verses later in verse 21, it says, and the Lord God made for Adam and his wife garments of skin and clothed them and clothed them. The beauty of the creation story and the beauty of the gospel is that even when we move away from God, he moves away, he moves toward them. In the creation story, God does not ghost Adam and Eve. He does not give them the silent treatment. He does not move away from them and he does not unleash which he had full authority to do. He does not unleash his rightful wrath upon them in their disobedience. In his love and in his kindness and his grace and in his mercy, he moves toward them. Even as they move away from God, he kills an animal and clothes them with the skin of an animal to protect them from the elements of the, of the now broken world that is filled with sin and suffering. Almost as to say that there will be one day, there will be a man who will come and not clothe you with a physical clothing, but clothe you with an eternal clothing. He will clothe you in his righteousness. And this will not only protect you, this will not just protect you from the physical things, but it will protect you from eternal damnation and it will give you life and life eternal. It's beautiful. It's a beautiful story taking place in the creation story. Just like Eve, when we have opportunity to place ourselves on the throne, our pure ambition becomes selfish ambition. Our pure desires become disoriented when we desire something other than God. And um, our friends, our Presbyterian friends who might be sitting among us, they, they'll know that in the West Minister Shorter Catechism, a way just to teach Christian um, um, uh, principles and Christian faith and really Christian theology, the Westminster Shorter Catechism says this, the chief end of man is to know God and to enjoy him forever. The chief end of man is not to work. The chief end of man is not to play. The chief end of man is not for food. It's not for a relationship. It's not to parent. The chief end of man is to know God and to enjoy him forever. And James actually picks up on this in James chapter four, in verse five, he says, or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the scriptures say he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us? Do you hear that? He yearns for you. God, our heavenly father, desires you. He is not jealous about you as though you have something that he does not have, as though you are able or capable to do something that he is not able or capable to do. He yearns for you. God yearns for your desires because God created you to desire God. You were not ultimately created for food. You were not ultimately created for marriage or work. You were ultimately created to know God and to love him and to enjoy him forever. And then James shifts here in verse six. It brings us to our second point, to a reoriented desire. This is the second argument that James makes. He's gonna make this statement. He's gonna give three supporting 
arguments, he says in verse six, but he gives more grace. Do you listen to that? How great is your pride, the grace of God is greater. How great is your sin, the grace of God is more. How much reason does God have to ghost you and to move away from you and to give you the silent treatment to pour his wrath upon you? God's grace is more. But he gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. God gives more grace. So James is about to tell us and give us some direction on what it looks like to reorient our desires around God. What are some practices, what are some thick habits that we can incorporate into our life that would help us reorient our desires? In verse seven, his first supporting argument says this, submit yourself therefore to God, resist the devil and he will flee from you. Submit your desire to God. And the promise is, is that the devil will flee from you. Consider where are your desires right now? What are you desiring more than you desire God? What do you run to first before you run to God? First, just recognize that. Identify that. One way in identifying that is why don't you try to remove some things from your life and then see what comes out. That's where you will identify. That's what will show you what you're running to first before you're running to God. That's what will show you that you are desiring that before you desire God. It's going to be different for all of us, but I think given our context, there are some things that we could kind of generally say that we tend to run to. A really, really simple one. It's November. Thanksgiving is coming up. God's, the greatest holiday that we celebrate in America is Thanksgiving. Let me tell you why because of the cranberry sauce. Whether it's homemade or it comes out of the can and it maintains its same shape, you know, in the same form with all the ripples and everything, it doesn't matter. Cranberry sauce is God's gift to man. It's how we know that God loves us. Also Jesus, but but aside from Jesus, like we know that God loves us because he's given us even the canned cranberry sauce, okay? It is so good. Desiring food is not a bad thing. It is not a, 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 a bad desire. But when we desire food more than we desire God, that's when it becomes sin. That's where our rightly oriented desires become disoriented. When we begin to run to food in order to escape from something, food becomes God to us. When we run to food to find comfort, that's where we're not running to God for comfort, we're running to food. That's where, that's where a, our desire for food becomes disoriented. A rightly oriented desire for food is when we approach the Thanksgiving table or any table for that matter, we can look at the food and it would remind us. We look at the food, the spread that's on the table and out of the abundance of food that is before us, it might remind us of the abounding grace that God has for us in Jesus Christ. This is where food ought to point us to Jesus. We were not created for food, but food was created for us to start our affections for the Lord, or in Edmund, work. Whether you work at an office or you work at home, a right desire for work is viewing work as worship, that we might approach our jobs as a way to bring glory to God, both as in our desires and in our practices. 
But far too often, we view our, in our disoriented desire, we throw ourselves into work because it has become the foundation of our identity. And what we do with our hands is what gives us value and worth as individuals. And then our identity is so tightly connected to our work that we will spend long hours at work disregarding our families, disregarding our community, disregarding the Lord himself. A right desire, a rightly oriented desire for work would be to view work as a way to bring glory to God, to see it first as a gift from God, to be grateful that it's a way that God provides for you. And then as you cultivate your home, as you cultivate something that you're building or creating, as you cultivate or create or that you sustain, you are imaging God and his glory and his goodness. How you interact with your employees, how you interact with your colleagues, how you interact with your boss, Lord, help us, all right? Then that, that we would bring glory and honor to God as we submit ourselves first to him and then take the good gifts that he's given us and worship him. So submit yourself to the Lord. Submission, this submission is an act of humility. It is a practice of humility. So as I mentioned earlier, James K.A. Smith suggests that there are thick and thin habits that will shape our desires. Thin habits do not shape our desires very often, very much. We all hopefully brush our teeth in the morning and in the evening, at least Dr. Wilcox would like you to do that. But that doesn't have a lot of effect on our desires. But there are other things that we do that do a shape our desires. And when it comes to scripture and spiritual things, we don't need to get clever with this. The Lord has already given us some practices to incorporate into our life. Not that we might earn God's favor, but that our desire might be shaped for God's glory. You might know them as spiritual disciplines, but the one thing that I want to highlight, the one spiritual discipline I want to highlight for submission, for a practice of submission, is fasting. Fasting is giving up something for a season of time. It's usually, we might say it's food, food for a day, or we might miss a meal or, or three meals in a day. And in place of eating, we spend time with the, with the Lord. What we are doing, whether it's giving up food, giving up social media, giving up something, it doesn't matter. What we are fundamentally saying and doing so is, God, I have far too often looked to these things for my sustenance. I've looked to these things for my identity and I want to remove them. I want to focus my heart. I want to focus my attention upon you so that you might be the source of my identity, that you might be, uh, that, that I might look to you as the greatest fulfillment of my satisfaction and my deepest desires. As we fast, as we remove things from our life and we orient our attention to God, we orient our desires to God through fasting, you might be surprised what will come out man, you actually longed for that a lot more than you thought. You depended upon that thing a lot more. How many of you take vacation but still work on your vacation? Fast from your, fast from your work. Just in vacation. I'm not saying quit your job. Lord, we're a church plant. We need it, okay? Like, we need your money. It's a joke. It's a joke. I don't care about your money. Jeff does. Um, <laughs> don't quit your job, but whenever you, whenever you take vacation fast from your job. Get some separation there. On the weekends, separate yourself from your job so you might more firmly root yourself in the Lord. So submit your desires to God. 
Who can satisfy your ultimate desires and now draw near? His second supporting argument in verse 8 says, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Drawing near to God is pursuing a right view of God. So often, I was taught wrong growing up, and I've even wrongly taught this before. When we read our Bible, we need to say, okay, how can this apply to my life? That is not the first question that we should ask when reading our Bible. When we read the Bible, we need to first ask, what does this say about God? Drawing near to God is working and pursuing a right view of God. There's a really helpful book that helps shape our view of God. Well, it's the Bible. But other than the Bible, there's another really helpful book written by A.W. Tozer called The Knowledge of the Holy, where he plums the very, a couple of dozen various attributes of God and just paints this really big picture of God and who he is. And it's very helpful in shaping this picture of God. This is drawing near to God, recognizing that God is for his glory and not for yours. Even more so, recognizing that your salvation is not for your glory, but it is for God. But James takes it a bit further here. This is what's wild to me, is that James takes it a bit further in verse 9, and he says, be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourself before the Lord and he will exalt you. Ruthless James back at it again. This is why I don't like him. Because if he would just deal with our actions, we might be able to do something. But he goes for the heart. He's not just saying draw near to God. He's not just saying submit to God. He's saying mourn and weep over your sin. Submitting Drawing near, mourning, and weeping is literally the definition of repentance. That whenever the Lord convicts us of sin, that we might cease from that sin, stop. But not that we would just stop because that's just moralism. We just become better people, and that's not Christian. But that we'd actually stop from that sin and then turn to the Lord. We might let go of that sin and turn to the Lord in humble submission to him. And this is where I think James is getting at our desires. This is where I think James, even in the first century, in the 60s, not 1960, but in the 60s, the, the OG, the original 60s, James recognizes that we're just not intellectual beings, but we are visceral beings, that we have desire. He says, mourn and weep. It's not just an intellectual assent, recognizing and agreeing that this is sin. We don't just agree with God intellectually of what sin is, but James is saying, no, you need to feel it in your bones. Feel the disgust. Have the disdain because whenever you hate sin and whenever you love God is whenever you will begin pursuing God, is whenever your desires go from disoriented desires to oriented desires. But for so, for so often, if you're anything like me, I don't hate my sin. I, I agree with God that sin is sin, but more often than not, when the Lord opens my eyes, like, oh, okay, that stinks. I guess we need to stop doing that. Just move on. For I know I find myself right back in the sin. We need to work to feel it in our bowels, to feel it in our gut, to feel it in our bones, to hate and to disdain sin and our desire. How do we do this? Well, I already said repentance, but a part of repentance is confessing our sin. We need to first confess our sin to God, but then we also need to confess our sins one to another. James later in James chapter five, in this same book, he will say, confess your sins one to another. Why would James do that? 
I think whenever we confess our sins, we are bringing what is dark into the light. And whenever you do that, if you've ever confessed sin to another individual, you feel the shame. You feel the embarrassment of that sin. You feel the humiliation of that sin. Then all of a sudden, you move from intellectually recognizing sin and understanding sin to feeling it, to understanding it, to hating it, because it is embarrassing, it is shameful. Here's what good Christian community does, though, is that in the midst of that confession, your Christian brother or sister does not leave you there. They do not leave you in your sin. They do not leave you in your embarrassment, in your shame, in your guilt, in your humiliation. They take the gospel and they begin to reclothe you in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And if you're a Christian, they are just reminding you of your true identity in Christ. They are reminding you that whenever God saved you, he knew about this sin. He knew about the sin that you're going to do tomorrow. And he knows about the sin that you never thought that you would do. And yet he still saved you because he is good and he is great. And just like in the garden with Adam and Eve, he moves toward you and he clothes you, but not in the skin of animals. He clothes you in the righteousness of Jesus. So whenever you feel unworthy, whenever you feel unlovable, God gives you worth. And God's love goes deeper than your feelings of unlovableness. That's not a word, but I just made it up. God's love goes deeper. And and good Christian community reminds you of that. And that is when you not only have a disdain and a disgust with sin, but then your love and your desire for our heavenly Father takes root at the deepest parts of who you are. And then that gives way to a reoriented life. And so James finishes up in 11 and 12, and he says this. So our third and final point, reoriented life, he says, do not speak evil against one another, brothers. No one who speaks against a brother or judges his brother excuse me, the one who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. Let me just stop right here. He's going back and what he's saying is that whenever you ask and you ask wrongly, you're setting yourself against God. He's doing the same thing here is that whenever you judge your brother, you're setting yourself against God and his law. He says, but if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. You are taking God and you're taking Jesus off the throne and you're placing yourself on the throne and you were not created to bear that burden, nor are you good enough. Verse 12, he says, there is only one lawgiver and one judge, he who is able to save and destroy, but who are you to judge your neighbor? He says, gird your loins. Assume your rightful position in humble submission to the law and to your heavenly father. Do not be so prideful and arrogant to look down upon your brothers because you are no different. It is not your place. You are to submit to God by giving him worship, submitting your desires to God. So live in humble submission to the king of kings by speaking life into your brothers or your sisters. We don't just give empty and pithy words of encouragement. We find and recognize someone is in sin. We reclothe them in the gospel. I worked on a ropes course for two summers in 2007, 2008. 
And as we learn the knots and how to string the ropes and all that stuff, we also learn how to facilitate groups. And we try to do some group building that whenever there was a climber climbing, we'd encourage the group to give them words of encouragement. And in our training, one thing they highlighted is what is actually not encouraging. And one of the statements that caught me off guard and that was a surprise to me was the statement that if I can do it, you can do it too. When somebody who had already climbed and kind of conquered the wall or whatever comes down and they start trying to encourage their peers to say, if I can do it, you can do it too. And they talked about how that actually is not encouraging. It actually immediately sets up competition and it begins a comparison game because that person climbing might not actually be able to do it. It's a pithy, worldly word of encouragement. We don't do that as Christians. We give one another the gospel. And there's substance there, there's hope there, and there's life there. We speak life to our brothers. We speak life to our sisters by reclothing them in the gospel, just like God reclothed Adam and Eve in the beginning in the garden. So a disoriented life is one who speaks, is not one, excuse me, a disoriented life is one who speaks evil against his brother, but a reoriented life is one who speaks life into his brother. And as you practice this, your desire for the Lord will even, will even begin to shape and take form as well. Your disoriented desires will become oriented as you partner with God and the Spirit of God to identify the work of the Spirit and to encourage one another in the gospel. Place Jesus on the throne as you reorient your desires by reorient, reorienting your life through fasting, repentance and confession. Church, let me pray for you and we'll close in worship. Father, you are good to us. God, we love you because you first loved us. And God, we confess corporately here today that our desires are bent and broken by sin and suffering. God, we know that we need you to change and to shape our desires. So God, we ask that you would do that. God, we ask that any practice or habit that we incorporate that you've given us through the spiritual disciplines, we would see as a means of your grace and that it would change our desires, God, that we would grow to hate sin all the more just like you and that we would grow to love you all the more. God, we were created for you and by you. God, help us know that. God, help us believe that. God, we love you because you first loved us and pray things in the name of Jesus. Amen.